when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Mastodon CEO Eugen Rochko. Mastodon is the open-source decentralized competitor to Twitter, and it's where a lot of Twitter users have gone in this, our post-Elon era. The idea is that you don't join a single platform that one company controls or one executive controls. Instead, you join a server, and that server can show you content from users across the entire network, which the people in the know call the Fediverse, Federated Universe. You get it? If you decide you don't like the people who run your server or you think they're moderating content too strictly, you can leave, and you can take your followers and social graph with you to another server. Think about it like email and you'll get it. If you don't like Gmail, you can switch to something else, but you don't have to quit email as a concept entirely. Now, if you're like me, you heard the words open source and decentralized, and then you heard the word CEO, and you thought, wait, why does the decentralized open standard have a CEO? The whole point is that no single person or company is in charge, right? And that's what I just explained. Well, welcome to the wild world of open source governance. It's a riot, my friends. You're going to hear Eugene and I say the phrase, benevolent dictator for life in dead seriousness, because that's how a lot of these projects are run. Linux has a benevolent dictator for life, Linus Torvalds. Big open source projects often end with one person in charge. For Mastodon, that's Eugen. We also talk about this moment for Mastodon, the post-Twitter moment, if you will. Eugen has been working on Mastodon for years now. The Verge has been writing about it for ages as well. And the platform was ready for the sudden influx of users after the various post-Elon Twitter calamities. And the underlying standard that Mastodon is built on is called ActivityPub. And a lot of smart people who built the web as we know it think ActivityPub will be the next big thing. Of course, we also talk about money and structure. It is Decoder, after all. I'll just tell you, Mastodon doesn't make a lot of money, and Eugen is figuring out how to build a structure that scales past just a tiny handful of people. But keep that in mind. This tiny, mostly volunteer labor of love might very well be the future of social networking. And if you believe the hype about ActivityPub, it might have some part in the future of the web as we know it. 
That's pretty exciting, even if things seem a little messy here in the moment. Okay, Eugene Rochko, CEO of Mastodon. Here we go. Eugene Rochko, you are the founder and CEO of Mastodon. Welcome to Decoder. Hi, hello. It's uh, very nice to have you here. Mastodon is having quite a moment, but I know you've been working on this project for a long time, so I think there's there's actually quite a lot to talk about. Yes, indeed. Let's start at the very beginning. Mastodon right now in the popular uh, conversation as a competitor to Twitter, but that's not really what it is. It's not really where it started. What is Mastodon? I mean, it's not that far off from where it started. I started working on it in 2016 because I thought that something as important as Twitter should not be in the hands of a single company. I was a pretty heavy Twitter user back then. I started using it, I think, in 2008 or so when I was a a teenager. Uh, And it quickly became a very important part of my life in, in the sense of talking to friends, finding out about things that happen in the world and so on. Around 2016, I I felt fed up with how Twitter was being run as a company, where it was heading, the community that was on there, the harassment and so on. And so I started looking into alternatives. And after viewing the landscape, I decided to build a product of my own and try to make it good. (laughs) <laughs> I appreciate that. What what I mean specifically by it, it's not exactly like Twitter. Twitter is a company. Uh, up until recently, it was a publicly traded company. It had investor reports. It had to make a profit. It had employees. It controlled the entire product. Mastodon is not that in almost any way. Indeed. Indeed. Mastodon is free and open source software that allows you to create a social media server or platform that connects to a decentralized network of similar servers, all talking the same protocol, uh, allowing not only different Mastodon servers to exchange information, but also uh, other software that speaks the same protocol. It's, It's a very powerful ecosystem with a lot of potential. When you say you're the CEO of Mastodon, but the product itself is open source software that anybody can run How does that work? What are you actually the CEO of? I am the CEO of the company Mastodon that works on the software Mastodon. It's just, it's (laughs) slightly confusing perhaps, but uh, it's also fairly straightforward that somebody is making the software and it's us uh, and uh, we have the same name. For the longest time, it was just me. I started working on this in 2016 when I was still in uni and I just... After graduating, I started a Patreon page for it, and it was, you know, at $5 per month for a while. And then it gradually increased uh, until I was able to work on it full time. And back then it was like, I don't know, $200 per month or $600 per month. And it was enough for me to live off of because of my situation back then. I started working at full time and I was technically a sole proprietor. Uh, it's a type of way to do business in Germany. Where you're basically uh, just represent yourself as a company sort of thing. And yeah, that, that went on for a long time, actually until 2021, when we finally incorporated a, uh, a separate legal entity for Mastodon. Over time, we got more people contributing to the code, some on a voluntary basis, There were a lot of 
drive-by contributors on <laughs> GitHub. Uh, you know, uh, over over 700 people have contributed lines of code to the software, but also just people that we work with regularly, contractors that uh, I hired. Right now, it's quite a sizable, well, not, not quite a sizable, but it, it is compared to where it started, it's quite a sizable company. Um, there's me, um, full-time employee, developer, CEO, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> uh, there's another developer, Claire. We have a CFO on a contract basis. We have a talent manager. We're hiring for three positions full-time. We have two developers working on our iOS app as contractors. We have one developer working on the Android app as a contractor. There is a uh, user experience design agency that, that works with us on a contract basis. And yeah, that's about it. But it's quite a lot of people to manage. <laughs> uh, well, so the company itself, it sounds, I'm just keeping rough count there. You have four full-time people and then a handful of contractors and an outside agency. Well, currently two full-time people, but okay. hiring for three more. So in the end, it would be five. Okay. So the, the talent manager is also on a contract basis? Yes. 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 Okay. I'm just, uh, the decoder for me is all about structure, right? How do these things yeah. happen? How do we put these companies together? Mastodon, there's a lot of pressure on the protocol, right? There's a lot of interest in it. There's a lot of new servers being spun up. Then there's having to develop and manage the development of an, a large open source project like Mastodon itself. How do you split the time, right? Between all the things people want Mastodon to do all the features people might wish to add to it, and then you actually running your company. I mean, I'm not going to lie, it's quite tough. And it's been quite tough since November. For a long time during Mastodon's lifetime, it wasn't as difficult because, well, the pressure on the project was much lower, even during busy times. I mean, Mastodon didn't just pop out of nowhere in November 2022. <laughs> we had our run-ins with uh, Global Fame, even going as far back as 2017, that's when it went viral for the first time. And uh, magazines like Mashable and The Verge have covered us back then for the first time. But in hindsight, it, it was much lower pressure back then. I was able to manage on my own. But now, clearly, the pressure is much, much larger. And it's it's not enough for just me to be involved in the project. Like, it needs to expand. There needs to be more people working on different areas there needs to be more delegation. And since November, it's been basically a whole ongoing project within our company to like figure out the hiring process because we're basically hiring for the first time. As you can tell from like the story that I told about the development of the company, like that's basically the first step that it makes from being like just me to like having more people and like more full-time employees. And it's just, it's a huge step and it's a new process for us. So we spent a lot of time like figuring out, okay, so these are the key roles that we need to fill as soon as possible. Because again, we're also dealing with a limited budget, right? Even though a lot more people donated <laughs> through our Patreon in November, and it's, it's like huge explosion of funds really going from $7,000 per month to $30,000 per month. Like it's, it's a big budget increase, which is what allowed us to look into hiring more people. But it's still a constrained budget, right? So you need to figure out, okay, so these are the key positions that will have the maximum impact on what Mastodon is doing as a company. Uh, and so we decided, you know, we need a DevOps person because 
I can't be running the company and solving technical issues 24-7. We need another developer so that it's not just me and Claire, so somebody else can work with Claire when I'm not around, <laughs> right? And we need a product designer because we got this far by me doing like the design, figuring out usability, user experience, and so on, but I'm not actually qualified to do that. And I want Mastodon to be the best product that it can be. I want it to be polished. I want it to be on par with any commercial alternative you, you might throw at it. So it's really important for me to find you know, the right design person that would also be able to take ownership and initiative in, at this stage. Because you know, basically, a lot of larger companies, they have whole teams working on this stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of these tasks are delegated. But in our case, it's kind of like, we have to find somebody who's, um, <laughs> who's able to like, multitask a little bit and, and just like, fill in the role that until now I had to basically do. I want to come to all of that. I think that's very interesting. I think just being on this podcast, a lot of people are going to come talk to you, uh, which I'm very curious to see how that goes. But I want to just sit for one second in what I think of as the middle stage that very few people pay attention to, right? It, and I always think about it when you listen to like the story of a band or something, the band forms, they play one show in the garage and then everyone skips the middle part to their playing in stadiums. And you're kind of on the, Oh boy, we better staff up so we can like play in stadiums part of the journey. But that middle part between us covering you in 2016 and 17 as Masson launches in November when Elon buys Twitter and all the attention, what made you stay convicted in Mastodon that this was a thing without the big spikes of growth or attention and whatever challenges and whatever financial limits that were placed on you. Why did you stay focused on it? Because you were ready in November of 2022 for the moment, right? The product was there. The servers were there. The ecosystem, the community was there, which is very important to be ready for the moment, but you, ha you could not possibly know the moment was coming. So what made you stay focused? Well, I, I would argue that I couldn't possibly know the moment was coming then, but the writing was on the wall for me back in 2016, that something was going to happen sooner or later. Um, so something, something with a big social networks, you mean, or something with Twitter specifically? Yeah, yeah just, just, a, just a shift, you know, because social media websites, they come and go, they die. Even if they stay around like MySpace, uh, nobody's talking about MySpace like it's a relevant thing anymore. And there's plenty more that have literally disappeared, like app.net, Google+, Friendster, whatever, <laughs> FriendFeed, you know? Yeah. yeah, it is a graveyard. And, you know, I, I never believed that Twitter would be, you know, completely immune to that sort of thing happening. So you could see, like, all the seven years that I've worked on this is kind of like a preparation for this sort of thing just without, you know, knowing when exactly it would happen and, you know, <laughs> like exactly what to do. It's been a long process of figuring out what are the right features, what are the right designs, what's the right messaging, how do you do this, how do you do that? So I will not claim that, you know, I had all the details figured out from the start. It was a long process of figuring stuff out. So you've described the sort of financial journey here is $600 a month in Patreon to $7,000 a month to $30,000 a month in Patreon. Is there another source of revenue? Is there a potential another source of revenue? 
No, that's pretty much it. One thing that we've done uh, over the years is that we just sort of created an additional like platform for the higher tier Patreon sponsors to give money to us as a sponsorship that would just allow us to give them invoices back. Like that's that's the only thing and save on Patreon fees a little bit. <laughs> but for the most part, Mastodon is financed through Patreon and like that that platform that we built for the higher tiers. And that's it. Last year, we received a grant from NLNet, which was something that came from the European Commission, which is a grant for open source projects that work on decentralized social networks. That was a little bit of site funding, but it was a one-time thing. And, you know, in the past, there was another one. There was a prototype fund project, but that was more like a personal grant kind of thing. Like sometimes you find these grants that sponsor people who work on open source projects and it can help continue working on this. But to answer your original question on why I stuck around, I mean, I believe in the vision. I believe that Mastodon is the better way to do social media. And I've stuck around because I am, well, I am dog fooding it, you know, I am <laughs> using it. It's my daily driver. You know, I have a home feed that I look at every day. I share what's happening in my life, the music that I listen to on my Mastodon profile. I, I most enjoy Catterday and looking through cat pictures and, and sharing <laughs> cat pictures uh, every Saturday. So, you know, that's why I've stuck around. And of course, there is a personal element to this as well in that it's kind of a cool job to have. You're doing something unique. You're getting paid to work for yourself in a way at your own pace, which can mean sometimes, you know, the times are quiet and there's not much to do. Unfortunately, sometimes it means that you have to work like pretty much nonstop and it's extremely stressful and extremely draining. Like it's been for the past like three months. So that's the downside. Usually people go through that experience at a startup because they have equity and they might go public or they might sell to Facebook or something for a huge amount of return. Do you see that outcome for yourself, that there will be some kind of exit from Mastodon where you'll reap some sort of massive financial reward? Or is it, this is the vision, it's an open source project, and we need to stay focused and idealistic? It's not really why I went into this, and I no, I don't see that. It is an open source project. It, it is free software. Uh, and there is, you know, there's nothing to be reaped from it. But I think I see... A good future for Mastodon. I see it growing both as a network and as a project. And, you know, my wage right now is really rather low. And for the most part, it's because, you know, when new funds come into the project, there are important things that I think need doing more than, you know, paying myself more. But I'm hoping that at some point there will be a break even point where. I'll be able to just have a dignified <laughs> wage as well. <laughs> That's fair enough. This is the classic decoder question. It, just listening to you, it, it sounds like you've had to make an escalating set of ever more complicated decisions since you started this project and it was just you. You're now at what might be the most fun part, right? Which is staffing up, figuring out who to hire, how to hire. How do you make decisions? What's your framework to make decisions? Framework to make decisions sounds very serious indeed. And... <laughs> Uh, it makes me wish that I had a more uh, elaborate answer to that. But sometimes I'm 
my decision making is led by what the community is asking for. But of course, it's all comes down to my vision for the project and what I think is right. That is my framework for considering uh, community suggestions or community demands and, and figuring out what the project needs and what it should avoid. In the future, I am really looking forward to having a more organized model for this kind of decision-making. Keyword that has been thrown around is participatory governance. Now, I'm not going to promise anything specific, but that is something that I'm talking to a couple people about. One thing that I would want to get out of something like that is just a more organized way of inferring community opinion about specific features or directions. Because at the moment, it is quite chaotic. The main way that people can voice their opinion about what should be in Mastodon or what shouldn't be in Mastodon is issues on GitHub, which is, uh, you know, basically, you know, feature requests, bug reports on our source code repository. And, you know, it's, it's just, you know, somebody submits a feature request. How do you know if that's something that a lot of people want and would benefit from, or something that only one person would benefit from, or if it's something that one person would benefit from, and then a whole bunch of people will hate it, you know? Right now it's it's very chaotic and you know my wish is to find a way to have some kind of vehicle where people would feel like they're represented and I would get a way to know okay so they've made their decision so now I can either go along with it or not but then I know there's just some kind of backing to that you know not just like trying to figure out okay 40 people on GitHub have given a thumbs up to this feature request. <laughs> what does that mean for the, you know, 2 million people using Mastodon today? Yeah. How do you build a social network using the tools of social networking? Seems like a recursive problem. Uh, yeah. We could do the entire podcast on open source governance models. We could probably do an entire conference on open source governance models. There have been a lot of yeah. them over time. Each of them has trade-offs. I'll just use Linux as an example because I'm confident the audience is familiar with Linux. At the top of Linux is Linus Torvalds, and he like literally has the title Benevolent Dictator for Life of Linux. Yeah. And that is the governance model that flows down from that title. Is that yeah. what you're thinking of? I got to pick one of these sort of well-worn... That is how it is right now. And honestly, I subscribe to that model. I think it's effective. I think that it leads to a better product because... A good product needs long-term vision and it needs cohesive vision. And that's something that like a committee cannot give. When you have a lot of people who just have pet issues, one thing that they care about, it, it kind of ends up being a patchwork and it loses some of its focus and it can end up in a situation where it just stops being a good product, becomes too confusing. And sometimes, you know, you, you need to make uh, executive de decisions about changing stuff in a serious way, which might not be popular with what most people in a committee would want. And so I don't look down on the BDFL model. I, I think that it's it has its place in open source, at least. I would not make any <laughs> comments <laughs> or claims about other areas of life, but in open source, I think it makes sense. And that's what I would prefer to stick with. But that doesn't mean that I don't think there's better ways to 
to involve other people and, and have better communication. What you're describing right now is familiar in shape, if not in the specifics, right? It's an open source product that has found product market fit, or at least the opportunity for product market fit. It's going to grow really fast. You need some help scaling. This is when venture capital firms show up at your door and say, look, we know how to do DevOps. We can install a bunch of lawyers to help you figure out open source governance. Look at all these tools. Here's a whole army of people that have done this before. Let us give you the money and the help and we'll scale it as fast as we can. Has that been happening to you? We've definitely had a lot of people from, from venture capital firms reach out to us. And we've even tried having a few conversations just to see where they were at, what they wanted. We've obviously had considered ways to have a more sustainable funding model for the open source project that would not rely on Patreon. We've explored if maybe uh, there would be a way to find funding for that. Uh -oh. I cannot say that anything productive has come out of it, and we've rejected every venture capital firm that has uh, reached out to us so far. Now, when I say a more sustainable funding model for the project, I obviously mean software as a service because it's, you know, it's the most natural way for an open source project to basically find a business model for itself. Uh, you have a product that you have you know, the, the most familiarity with. You can offer it to other people in a way that they don't have to find out how to install it, how to manage it, and so on. So it, it is quite nat natural, and it's, it's been on my mind for quite a few years as a sort of backup plan for, you know, in case uh, for some reason people stop donating to the Patreon, you know. But there's a lot of activity in that space right now. A lot of uh, these hosting firms are jumping up, starting up. I think we, we would could have an edge in that space, but it also doesn't seem like a priority right now, if I'm honest. So Yeah. Are you rejecting all the VC firms because the pitch is basically the same for all of them? We'll give you a bunch of money and resources, but we're looking for 30x revenue growth or whatever? Yeah, it's basically, it's somewhere between a hosting business is not really venture capital uh, scale, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't promise the same returns. What they seem to be interested in is more of a, you know, we'll give you money now and you don't have to think about monetizing, but in two years, <laughs> let's figure out how we could turn your open source project around. And, you know, that's that's kind of a no-go zone for me, you know? It's, it's, just, it's a trap, you know? It's clearly against... Uh, our project's ideals. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote-unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash 
decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back. I want to dive deeper into how Mastodon works. Let's talk about Mastodon, the community, the product, right? So I kind of understand the company now. And I understand very clearly that you have a specific set of ideals about how you want to run the company, about the nature of decentralized social networks, about moderation. I want to talk about all those things. But right now, the basics of the community are you download the Mastodon software from Mastodon, the company. You can spin up your own server. You can go try to get your own users for it. And then you can, in a federated way, send messages back and forth across these servers. How many users does Mastodon have now across instances? God, I am unprepared for this question. Uh, <laughs> I am actually unprepared for this question because the statistics API on our official website has not been functional for a couple of days because I need to change the code a little bit to make it more efficient. So I actually have not kept up with it, but I would say... Uh, at least uh, one and a half million monthly active users. Okay. And then in November, when Elon took over Twitter, you saw a huge spike. What does that spike look like? That spike was 2.5 million monthly active users. So it's gone down since then. Yeah, but there's a caveat to that spike. And that is the way that active users are counted on Mastodon in the software is uh, if you log in, right? And every person who signs up logins. So it's kind of kind of inflated through people who sign up and then bounce. So it's natural for it to go back down, back to more natural levels. And it's just in fact unfortunate side effect of how the, the statistics were implemented in it. So it's both impressive because it, you know the you know the, the big number highlights how many people checked out Mastodon, but it's also normal for the number to go back down to a more level area again. Are you still growing? Yeah, it's still growing. And in fact, it's growing faster now than it was before because of some changes that we did to our official apps, as well as the changes we did to the official John Mastodon Org website. I adjusted the sorting to highlight bigger servers first. It's a big change from how, what it used to be, where we tried to highlight smaller servers. And a lot of them at the top were the ones where you can't create an account straight away, but you have to wait for approval. And that was just not very user-friendly. So now the ones with open registrations and larger ones are at the top. And of course, that has had a very quick effect on the growth, uh, increasing it. And similar changes have been made in the official apps, as well as the onboarding improvements in general that we've been working on since November. They've finally been released on both iOS and Android. They include both a better explanation of 
what the hell decentralization is, what the servers <laughs> are before you get thrown into the server list, but also changes to the server list that allow a bit more sorting, a little bit just display your information in a better way, but also provide a pick for me option where if you don't make a selection, it gives you a random option. So I have an account on mastodon.social, which is the one that you run. By the way, I follow Eugen. He's not kidding with yeah. the cats thing, if, in case you're listening. I was 100% <laughs> sure. Um, but there's all sorts of other servers. What are the economics of running one of those servers? Because that's to me, is one of the, the most difficult things to understand. I spin up a Mastodon server on Squarespace or whatever it is, one of these hosting companies that wants to let me do this very easily. I run it. I get users. I've got to pay Squarespace. Do I, the administrator of the server, make any money? Is there anything built into the platform that lets me make any money doing this? No, not really. It's not really about making money off of hosting Mastodon. It's mm -hmm. more about when you host Mastodon for yourself, you're in control. You own it. It's your megaphone and nobody can say you're kicked out or you can say this, you can't say that, or uh, you know, take your data and sell it to a third party. It's your complete ownership over your own social media platform, right? but without losing global reach because people can follow you from other servers. And so hosting a Mastodon server for yourself or for your family, for a small private group of people that you know, it is really relatively simple and it's not too expensive. You do need either a hosting provider, somebody who will offer Mastodon as a service, or you need like a small virtual private server from DigitalOcean or similar hosting company where you can, if you have the know-how on, on how to install programs on Linux and how to run them, where you can install Mastodon and you know you, you just need your own domain name and there you go. When you run the server for yourself, you don't really need to think about things like moderation because you know, you're just responsible for yourself. And obviously you'll, you'll need to block bad actors and stuff, but you know, you're just doing it for yourself. You, you don't have to worry about, you know, community management. Then completely different side from this is when you want to run a server for a community or for the public. It's a whole different level of responsibility and obviously involves, you know, moderation burdens. Like you need to moderate, you need to find people who will moderate for you. Sometimes for, for smaller communities, people just do it out of their pocket because, you know, the community matters to them or it's like an offshoot of their like main community website. You know, if they have like a forum and, you know, they get a Mastodon server, like as a bonus value add to that. Like we could actually talk about Medium as an example of that because Medium have spun up their own Mastodon server. Mm -hmm. Now they're a publishing platform for long form articles for writers, right? And what do writers do? They usually announce what they've written on social media in, in short form content. And so Mastodon is a perfect fit for them to uh, basically offer it as a value add. You have your Medium account, you can sign into Mastodon and post about what you've just written on Medium and drive traffic to your writings that way. So that, that's one example of how it fits with something that already exists. And of course, for other cases, the Mastodon service that are monetized, if that's the right word, is through Patreon basically by, you know, people are providing a service and then some people who value that service donate back to keep it afloat. So Mastodon.Social is the one that Mastodon, the company, runs. 
Correct. That is, I would say, the most famous one, for lack of a better word. You open signups, you close signups. Why do you sometimes close signups? In the past, it's been a huge burden, especially when I was working alone, to wrestle with the scaling problems, with the technical issues of running a large-scale server at the same time as running a company and writing code. That's just one side of it. The other side is ideological. Ideologically speaking, uh, Mastodon is a decentralized social network, right? So we don't want to promote a single node more than other ones. The ideal system is one where there's a whole bunch of different servers and they're roughly the same size and it doesn't matter which one you use, they're all interconnected, right? Because when you get to a situation where one single node is much, much bigger than all the other ones, the problem is that it gets disproportionate power to change things, to enforce its own whims. And an example of that is email and the situation with Gmail. Gmail is huge and they have very good spam filters. But unfortunately, those good spam filters sometimes catch people who try to self-host email. And it creates a situation where it's so difficult to self-host email, you're basically forced to just go use Gmail or one of the other large providers instead. And that's the kind of situation we ideally want to avoid in Mastodon and in the Fediverse, which is the name for the, uh, for the network that Mastodon is basically part of based on this activity protocol. So we want to avoid that. And, and so for that reason, you know, uh, historically, we've been trying to promote a, a healthy distribution of people uh, across these different servers. Now, what I've learned, however, over the years is that there is no replacement for having a default, right? I'm sure you, you realize like, when people are used to just going on a website and creating an account, presenting them with a choice of hundreds of different servers, all provided by different people and organizations that they don't know, it's quite a paradigm shift. It's quite difficult for people to grasp on first sight. And I think it's something, really it is a strength of the platform that there is such a diversity of offerings. Instead of on Twitter, you, you just have Elon Musk. And you know if, if he decides to do X, there's nothing you can do about it. On Mastodon, in some ways, you still have the potential for, for like a mini Elon, right? Mm -hmm. But unlike with Twitter, you have the option to just take your account and go somewhere else or start your own and still participate in the network. So the power of, of somebody like Elon in, in the Fediverse is greatly diminished. So that's the, the strength of it. But to realize the strength, you need to be basically into the idea already. And for that, we need like a simple conversion, you know, a, a simple sign up that people can go through without too much hassle, without being presented with a, you know, a completely different way to do things where they, you know, they go and they say, oh, it's too complicated. I can't choose. Yeah. Um, so that's what I've realized over the years. And the idea right now is to keep registrations open and continue having them open to the best of our ability. The only situation where I think we, we would maybe in the future close signups temporarily is if there is technical issues that affect quality of service. Because priority for us has always been if, if lots of new people are joining and the, you know, the servers are melting down is 
ensure that the people who are using our server now can continue to do so and have good quality of service. If that means closing signups and directing people elsewhere, then so be it. But with the way that we're expanding the company, getting a dedicated DevOps person and so on, and with the, you know, the new funds that we got, I think we will be able to keep registrations open going forward. So the Gmail comparison is really interesting here. I cannot believe I'm about to explain Gmail to the decoder audience, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it just so I have said it out loud. Email is an open protocol that is run by a standards organization. Gmail runs on those protocols, SMTP and IMAP and the rest. And so does Outlook or whatever. The reality for most people is that there's a collapse between the protocol and the application on their phone, right? So if you have Outlook, you are almost certainly not using the Gmail app. If you have Gmail, you're almost certainly not using the Outlook app. You're going to the service and putting that app on your phone. The only real exception to this rule is like the Apple Mail app on the iPhone, right? Everything else is kind of, there's a collapse between the protocol and how it's expressed to the user. Mastodon.social, that's the one you run. You download the official Mastodon app. It's going to default you into it because defaults are important. I mean, literally, the number one criticism I hear from people is, well, you have to pick a server and it'll never work because no one wants to pick a server. Okay, you're going to solve that problem. But now, aren't you getting closer to that collapse between the open protocol and the user experience where people think Mastodon, they download the Mastodon app, and they end up on the Mastodon server? Well, for reference right now, Mastodon Social isn't actually the default in our app. It's just one of the top ones that shows up. However, I think that possibly going forward, we might rework the onboarding user experience into presenting a default option as well as an advanced option where all of that stuff with choosing a server would be basically hidden away from those people who get scared by choice, right? Who get, who get uh, intimidated by choice. But yes, you are correct in that uh, it gets us closer to the Gmail situation, but it's kind of unavoidable with the constraints of the problem that I've described where you know the, the choice is too complicated and you need to convince people that this is better and that this is something they should invest some time into. And then they'll realize both how it works and what they can do with it. That is the idea. The idea is the funnel, right? They get started on Mastodon.social but afterwards, they can move to an account on their own server that they create or on a different server provided by a different company or a different person, right? And historically, it has been the case. A lot of people who are currently running their own servers or even have started their own public servers that they offer, they had their first account on Mastodon Social. So it, it, it is working. And it does make Mastodon Social somewhat disproportionately large I imagine in the future, but that's just part of making it work. I think. <laughs> uh, is there a point at which the cost of Mastodon Social will be too much, where you'll have to actually monetize it directly? It's hard to say if the cost will be too much, and it's equally hard to say if there will ever be a point where some kind of monetization is absolutely necessary. One thing that I've looked into as part of our software offering, as, as part of the Mastodon software somewhere down the line is a way for admins to basically monetize account creation, basically to offer paid accounts like a premium email service would do. I think that's a very fair way to monetize. What right now people manage to do with Patreon and basically an honor system, you just 
codify it into the software. You say, okay, I pay you this amount per month. And for that, I receive an account and good quality of service. And I, that makes sense to me. I can't say for sure if we ourselves will ever make use of something like that. And, you know, it's hard to predict so long in advance and with unknown growth as well. But it's something that I want to make available for other admins so that there can be more sustainable business models in the Fediverse. I realize I keep asking about money, but one of the reasons I keep asking about money is that if you, you want this to be a success on the scale of success you're talking about, it actually needs to become an ecosystem, right? There needs to be multiple kinds of business models and businesses using the protocol, using Mastodon, inventing new ways of going. That's what makes it resilient to change in a way that, you know, MySpace's business was not resilient to change. Are you open to that, to saying, okay, some people are going to monetize this thing in a way that maybe I personally don't like or that I'm ideologically opposed to, but in order for the ecosystem to thrive, lots of people have to be trying lots of different things? Well, I don't know about something that I would be ideologically opposed to, but um, well, you I just, think you're, that, you're one of the few CEOs I talk to that will state their values as clearly as you have. So that's why I asked it that I way. Think, I think a diversity of, of business models in the Fediverse would be a good thing. I, I think different people exploring different ways to do stuff on this in this ecosystem would benefit everyone because the good business models would fail and the good ones would thrive, hopefully. At the end of the day, I think it's good to, to be able to, to support these different business models. And I think companies are eager to start building on top of the Fediverse because for the first time in history, it's an ecosystem where one company cannot just pull the rug from under them, right? By closing the APIs because it's open source, it's built on open protocols. So the API literally cannot be uh, locked down in, in the way that Twitter is doing right now or has promised to do, you know? So, you know, when the developers from Tabbots build their Ivory app, the premium paid iOS app for Mastodon, they know for sure that I am not going to pull the rug from under them and they will not lose their existence. And I, I welcome apps like that. I, I welcome apps being built on top of the Mastodon API. I welcome other software being built on top of the ActivityPub protocol that integrates with Mastodon. I, I think it's very exciting that Tumblr has announced ActivityPub support, that Flickr mm -hmm. has expressed interest in it. I was very happy when Vivaldi, the, the, the browser, announced their own Mastodon server, and Mozilla has announced the same, and Medium, and it's extremely exciting. So those companies that are announcing support for ActivityPub, which is the underlying protocol for Mastodon. So we had uh, automatic CEO Matt Wellenweg come on. He said, ActivityPub is great. Fundamentally, this is all blogging. My whole company is blogging, whether it's Tumblr or WordPress.com or whatever. We're going to support this and, and be in full support of blogging. We talked to Mitchell Baker from Mozilla. She said, Mastodon is really interesting. This is where I'm pointed. First, we're just going to set up an instance and see how it works. But you can see the turn there for her is building some activity pub support directly into the browser itself. Do you worry that, okay, here's a lot of attention from big companies. They're just going to spin up their own massive instances or Tumblr will become a sort of strange new default activity pub source and we'll just kind of end up back at Twitter, but with an underlying open source protocol? Because that is the Gmail problem, right? I is think I think that... 
Twitter with an underlying open source protocol. And okay, open source doesn't really play, uh, doesn't factor into the protocol bit. Twitter based on an open protocol mm -hmm. would be a good thing, even in its current state, because you would be able to follow the people that you care about and be followed back by them without engaging with the actual platform, right? Instead of being locked in into one commercial service, you would be allowed to leave and to to build your own platforms and, and do something better without fighting against the network effects of a locked in commercial platform. So I see it as a good development, no matter what, when more platforms are announcing support, because it means that the network, the Vataverse becomes more useful for everybody. And if, if we create a future where a whole bunch of social networks are interoperable based on ActivityPub, it's a great future. Even if, you know, ideally also, you know, open source and everything, but even without that, it would still be a better situation for the web than is right now. One of the things about ActivityPub that is interesting is that it is closer to format agnostic than sort of the Very other. Very versatile. Right. Versatile. That's a good, that's a good word for it in the way that, you know, an Instagram is sort of incompatible with a tweet from the, from the jump. Like they're just not the same thing or a TikTok is not compatible with a Facebook post from the jump. And you can see how much work Facebook internally has had to do to retrofit something that looks like TikTok onto Facebook. ActivityPub is just more versatile than that. It, the posts can be long. They can contain multi-mode media, t pictures and text, whatever it is. Do you think that someone might fork it and make it more specific? Because those are the social platforms that tend to win, right? The ones that kind of funnel everybody towards a, a particular format that captures the zeitgeist. And I'm specifically thinking of, if you talk about Friendster to MySpace to Facebook to Instagram to TikTok, the funnel has been now just point a camera at your face and go. And you're kind of back at, well, actually writing is the, <laughs> an A plus ultra of the internet. We should just do a good job at it. I would argue that this has already happened, but not in mm -hmm. quite the way that you've described it. Okay. Because ActivityPub is the protocol for exchanging information in, like, the, in the programmatic way, right? And in a programmatic way, an Instagram photo maps onto the same structures as a video on YouTube or a post on Twitter, right? You can map these concepts onto very generic concepts and add all the you know necessary metadata as extra on top. Now, Mastodon is a product built on top of this protocol that focuses on short microblogs, on short posts with videos or images attached or polls where people follow each other. But there already are other Fediverse projects that focus on different aspects of the social experience, like PixelFed, which is focused entirely on photos, right? It's a photo app. It isn't not really concerned with short form blogging. It's just concerned with photos. But you can follow a PixelFed user from your Mastodon account and vice versa. And then, you know, in your home feed on Mastodon, you get all these photos that people on PixelFed post. And on PixelFed, you get all the photos that a Mastodon user posts. It maps back onto each other, not always 100%, and it doesn't have to. Because as you say, it's so versatile. It doesn't always make sense. If there is a, a new platform that does something very, very unique that would 
have no way of mapping onto what Mastodon is doing today, they would not have to share any space. But there might be another platform that is kind of similar to that one, and they would be able to interoperate using that same, those same semantics, right? There's a variety of these platforms and on the Fediverse, and PixelFed and Mastodon are just some of them. There's another one called PeerTube, which is one where you have channels and you publish long-form videos on them. And again, you can just follow a channel on PeerTube from your Mastodon account and get those videos in your home feed. And you can leave comments, and then those comments appear on the videos. Because a reply on something like Mastodon, which could be compared to Twitter, really maps well onto a comment on a video like on YouTube, you know? Do you think there's any danger of one of those platforms saying, ah, we're, we've hit the limit here. We're just going to fork the Mastodon code and build our own version of this thing and build a separate network that might have its own network effects. And that becomes the challenge to Mastodon. Of course, something like that could happen with the protocol. There is an XKCD comic for that. And uh, <laughs> you know, the, the punchline is now you have... Uh, one more standard yeah. to, to care it's a, about. It's a very famous comic, yes. Um, I kind of walked so, into this answer. <laughs> I think what speaks in favor of ActivityPub and, and Mastodon is that we have built up this network. We have built up some momentum and some network effects for this protocol, which means that it's not really in anybody's interest to start completely from scratch uh, of course, it doesn't stop everyone. There's that Jack Dorsey's pet project, Blue Sky, which mm -hmm. you know they, they have analyzed all of the different decentralized social media projects and then decided to come up with their own, completely separate from everything that came before again. You know, so, you know, that's <laughs> well, they've, they've, they've all succeeded the in hiring like one person after this yeah, they've, project. They, yeah. After two years of deliberations, they've published <laughs> something and now it's quiet again. Um, you know, um, there's Noster, which is, I think Dorsey's also, and there's very much that, into that. yes, there's that. And as far as I know, it's just full of, you know, spam and, and people talking about cryptocurrencies, <laughs> uh, stuff like that pops up, but activity pub is a very promising technology. No protocol is perfect and can never be perfect. That is important to be acknowledged because you will never be able to make activity pub two that will not have some issue that somebody will find and be like, okay, we need activity pub three, right? So acknowledging that, you might come around to the conclusion that, okay, activity pub is here. A bunch of people are using it. A lot of people are using it. We'll stick to it and we'll make it better. And you can make it better because you can extend it. It's a technology that can be extended. There are these basic concepts, basic semantics, but if there's something that doesn't map onto those semantics, you can add them progressively on top of it uh, for, for new features, for new concepts. And then other people that, that interoperate with you can decide, okay, well, we want to display that information in our app as well, so we'll start supporting that. We have to take one more quick break. When we come back, I ask Eugen about Mastodon's big selling point, governance. I mean it. It's the selling point. Stick around. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. 
because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're back with Eugen Rochko. I've wanted to ask this set of questions because I'm very curious how it works and how you think about making it work. The technology and how you personally think about who might use it and why, all that is based on the central notion that one company should not be in charge of social networking, right? That you should not have a Twitter or you should not have a Facebook or even a YouTube or whatever that is just yep. sort of in control of how we express ourselves online. I ask those questions because I never really hear people ask you the questions. I hear people ask about the next set of things, which is content moderation. But I, I feel like it you can't quite understand the content moderation aspect of Mastodon without understanding the governance of the protocol. But now I have mm -hmm. to talk about content moderation. The point of this, as far as I can tell, is that you don't think one person should be in charge of content moderation. Yes. So anybody can start a server. They can impose any rules they want. Some of those rules can be very strict. Some of them can be very permissive. There's no central place to impose rules from your perspective. Yes, exactly. As you come to a place where Mastodon Social becomes the default, do you feel any burden to change the content moderation rules for the default server? Um, I wouldn't say that there are any issues with the rules that we have right now that we have identified. For the most part, our users are happy uh, and our moderation load is bearable. Uh, we have a bunch of paid moderators working on our server and you know, as, as it grows, it will expand further and further, obviously. Um, I mean, the, the moderation team. Uh, but in, in the sense of rules, I, I think it's, it's quite fair to keep them as they are. They are on the safe side of the gradient between uh, you know, permissive and, and safe, but not too restrictive. And I, I think it's a good balance that we've stricken over the experience of, well, seven, seven years of running that server. As you grow, this is the challenge, though. Small communities are relatively self-sustaining, self-moderating to an extent. As they scale, things 
get out of control very quickly, right? And people start doing very bad things very quickly. We have written about the challenges that moderators face on scaled social platforms for years now. Is that a set of challenges that you're facing where people are doing the worst possible things with your service? Are you, do you have automated tools? How does that work for you? Uh, I would say that we were lucky enough that due to our smaller size, we haven't had to deal with the kind of horribleness that let's say Facebook moderators have to deal with. Um, it's honestly, most of our reports are either just, you know, generic spam or people being mean to each other. It's not the horrible stuff that Facebook moderators need therapy for. Mm -hmm. So in, in that sense, we've been lucky. To answer your question on automation, we have avoided automation so far because we believe in the personal approach. And what allows this personal approach is the decentralization and the, the different size constraints, right? First of all, back in regards to the rules, right? It is actually quite liberating in a sense to have this decentralized network because you can say, okay, these are the rules of the service that we offer. And if you're not okay with it, yeah. that's fine because you can go somewhere else where what you want is allowed, or you can just run it your own. We don't have any obligation to you know, allow you to post this or that if you can just do it yourself on your own money, right? And I, I just want to point out that this is a hypothesis that has never been tested, right? That if you give people a choice of moderation regimes, that they will pick one that offers the most safety and they won't pick one that has the horribleness because yeah. right yeah. now everything is so centralized. So yeah. this is like a large scale test to see if that the sort of market based version of content moderation actually succeeds the way people have always said it would. Yeah. So going from that point to back to moderation, um, this decentralized system also allows to share some of the load of the moderation burden between completely different systems and completely different organizations, right? If you count a person running a server as basically a moderator, then the lower bound of the number of moderators in the Fediverse is something like over 9,000 or 10,000, because that's the number of servers that there are. And of course, you know, for the single person servers out there, it doesn't really matter because they're just, you know, as I said, they're not really moderating, they're just uh, running their own personal platform. But for all these communities, you know, if you have 20 people and one moderator, that's a much higher ratio of users to moderators than on any other commercial social media platform, right? And this decreases the, the, the moderation burden for everybody because for the most part, people take care of, uh, you know, the, the rule breakers on their own servers and then, you know, the, the other moderator doesn't have to deal with it. Um, but this leads to challenges, right? Because what you want is a megaphone, right? You, you, when you're a writer on Medium and you write the thing and you post it to the Medium Mastodon instance, you're not trying to get to other, 20 other Medium writers, right? You're hopefully trying to address millions of people who follow you across Mastodon yeah. instances, and they all might have different rules. And if you write about some hot button issue that breaks a bunch of rules, right, you won't actually reach all those people. But those communities also have to moderate themselves. And so you kind of end up at a place where it, the, it's harder to know what is going to happen because there are so many fragmented rules. 
as opposed to I'm just mad at YouTube all the time because YouTube is too opaque. Like I, I'm wondering if you if there, you see a balance there that actually results in something different, right? Because right now I, I think say, the frustration most people have is they don't know what's going to happen. I would say that content moderation is one of the hardest problems in social mm -hmm. media. There's no denying that. You know, we, we, can, we can add features, we can remove features, we can improve, you know, how a button looks or whatever. Content moderation is always going to be at the core and center of, you know, what, what makes a social media platform work. So, yeah, it, it is complicated. But to counter your point, if you publish something about some hot button issue that a lot of people will disagree with, they might not see it, even if you, you know, have a, a centralized service where you know, everything is allowed because they'll block you, because they'll filter out the word, because they'll they'll use a block list that they've made themselves mm -hmm. and share around. That sort of thing is not unique to the Fediverse and to the decentralized system of, of, of moderation. If for whatever reason you get blocked by a server of like 20 people, right? Well, that's part of it. Just imagine you were blocked by 20 people for, you know, writing that issue. Now, I'm not saying that everything is perfect because, for example, I think that there needs to be more transparency for users about what is happening with, with moderation on their servers. You know, I don't think it's great that your admin can make a decision to block another server and then suddenly you lose a bunch of followers yeah. without knowing about it. I, I think that we need to build, you know, some kind of notification system into it that will tell you, okay, your admin has made the decision to block the server. You've lost this amount of followers. If you disagree with this, here's what you can do, right? As long as you have that, then people can, again, move to a better server, start their own. Nobody really suffers, right? So I, I agree with you. I think content moderation is the most complicated part of operating a social network. My thesis is that it is fundamentally the product, right? In a way that any Mastodon instance with its different set of content moderation rules is only distinguished from the next Mastodon server because it has slightly different rules or a slightly different community, right? And that community might self-enforce those rules. What I'm curious about is moderation is the cost, right? Even beyond server costs or whatever, moderation and legal compliance as your community scales becomes a cost that is almost unbearable except for the largest companies in the world. So Facebook has to run moderation services across the world. They have to be in legal compliance across the world. Right now, as we speak, there is a Supreme Court case being heard about Section 230 and Google's recommendation algorithm on, on YouTube. I don't know how that's going to go. I can point to two specific Mastodon examples, right? The Financial Times, I think, started a Mastodon instance and shut it down within days saying, okay, just the legal compliance costs of running this server are too high for us. And the other one that was much funnier than that, uh, I think it was a, a Harry Potter server shut itself down <laughs> because there was an argument about Harry Potter and the community got out of control. Um, and there's like, there's like a lot of arguments about Harry Potter. Those, that community is just like fully out of control right now. But you can see, okay, I start a server, it gets, it gets moderately popular, and suddenly as an administrator, my costs both in money, in time, in legal fees, whatever it is, just start to skyrocket in a nonlinear way to my user base or my activity or my financial return. Is there a way for you at the protocol level, at the governance level, to bring that back in line? Or is that 
well, someone's going to have to figure out how to monetize this to make those costs work out. Well, first to address the financial times, I think they made the fundamental mistake of trying to run a public server instead of just running a server for their own journalists mm -hmm. and people who work for the financial times. Because the moderation uh, load, the, even the technical investment required is completely different for these models. And I'm not going to recommend everyone to start a public Mastodon server and just start you know, accepting registrations from the public and, and, and get like thousands and thousands of users because it is a huge responsibility. It is a responsibility. It comes with a cost. It comes with potential liabilities. It's not easy, but is it easy to start a social network from scratch? No, it, it is not. It is absolutely not. Imagine starting something like Twitter completely from scratch. Mastodon is what allows you to do that if you want to do it. It's a shortcut to starting your own Twitter for the public if you want, but you know it comes with all of the costs and, 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 and problems and risks of, of running a public service like that. Now, if you run it just for yourself, because you're an author, you're a blogger, you're a publisher, if you just want to, you know, if, if you're just an, an enthusiast and you want to consume content from other people uh, on your own terms, you know, it, it's a completely different model because no, you're not really liable for anything. It's just for yourself. You're not really risking much and it doesn't mm -hmm. cost a lot. And you don't need to think about moderating or hiring moderators or whatever. For the servers that do run publicly and then accept registrations from the public, yes, moderation comes at a cost. Now, of course, as I mentioned before, the cost of moderation and the burden of moderation is shared across the entire network. And it is a lot lower than if a single company was doing it for millions and billions of users, right? If all you have to manage is a community of let's say even 5,000 people, unless you have a lot of churn, which, which means if you have a lot of new people joining all the time, for the most part, the people that, that you have on your server will be well-behaved because the bad ones will already have broken the rules and be suspended, you know? Can I push you on this? I, I, yeah. This is, what I, this is what I believe the same thing that you believe, but I'm not the CEO of Mastodon. Do you have data that says that is actually true? Because I feel like that is the lived experience of being on the internet, that if your community is small, it will self-regulate and it gets big and it goes nuts. But if I'm making this bet, I would want to know that that's true. And I could provide you anecdotal counterfactuals, right? I could say, you look at Reddit, Reddit is a history of small communities fracturing into rival subreddits and that will go on for infinity. So is, is this something that you believe? Is this something that you know? Is this something that you can measure? Well, it's, it's based on my experience running Mastodon Social and the moderation mm -hmm. loads that we get. I mean, most of the reports that come to us are usually about people who have just signed up and they're people that don't belong here. Like the okay. people who don't actually agree with our rules and who, who break them straight away. And during times when we had closed registrations, the load on our moderation team was a lot, a lot lower. Because for the most part, you know, it's quite straightforward, really. You know, the, the people who break rules, they show themselves, like, very quickly. They get banned. And then there's nobody left to break the rules, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel like people overestimate sometimes the burden, uh, the, the, the amount of reports, the amount of, of moderation necessary that comes with a specific server size, with a specific amount of users. Because most people don't regularly break the rules. It is still 
a minority of, of, of people who do that, a minority of cases where it happens. And it only increases when you have lots of new people coming in and possibly, you know, if, if you have like, you know, a troll army that decided to make a bunch of accounts, you know, that can make the numbers go up. But otherwise, it's been quite manageable so far, really. As you look across the spectrum of Mastodon instances, do you actually see a, a, a diversity of rules? Do you see that, okay, there are, there's a spectrum and we have the most permissive sites and the least permissive sites? There is a spectrum, but I think for the most part, the majority of the servers that run Mastodon today have agreed on a certain set of, of rules, probably because a lot of them have been inspired by Mastodon Social and our rules originally. So there is a lot of overlap. Some are a bit more restrictive about specific things, like, for example, content warnings or um, the kind of self-promotion that you can do, whether you can run an account as a company, as a brand versus as a natural person, that sort of thing. Sometimes people get restricted with it. You know, obviously there is a side to the Fediverse that is completely on the opposite side towards permissive and, you know, everything goes, free speech, everything. And for the most part, it is, you know, ostracized and, and, and distanced <laughs> from from the the previous side. So there's a lot of different approaches exist out there. And do you see that, are they growing in parallel? Is one growing faster than the other? How is that playing out? I believe that our part grows faster because they get traffic from joinmaston.org, right? Our official website and our official apps. So that helps. Do you worry that the sort of other side, the, the, the most permissive libertarian side is going to say, this is unfair. You need to list our servers as a default as well. Well, there is no real obligation for us to link to anybody really. So it's, you know, it's just sometimes, yeah, I, I get people uh, very upset with me for not giving them a free link from our <laughs> official website. But we're not really obligated to, to provide a link to anyone. And we just do it to make the signing up process easier for end users. And we're, all, we're only going to link to a place if we think that people are going to be safe there and they're going to have a good time. And if your server is allowing everything and all types of you know, language that, that is completely inappropriate, then you know, they're not going to be safe there and we're not going to send them there. So there's that. Eugene, you've given us a ton of extra time. I want to say thank you. I'm very excited to see where Mastodon goes. I did sign up over the weekend. Decoder listeners know I took a break from Twitter-like networks to heal my brain after 10 years, but I signed up for Mastodon.social, so I'm excited to use the product. I have two feature requests for you. One, it's slow. Can you make it faster? Yes, I think so. That would normally be not a software problem, but an infrastructure problem, something specific to Mastodon.social. And honestly, depending on when you access it, it could have been a DDoS attack because uh, <laughs> you know that 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 happened. And uh, just uh, last night, uh, I, I was looking into a, a traffic spike, uh, seven seven times higher traffic than usual, that was causing a lot of errors to to appear. So you know, if if you're complaining about slow slowness, it could be that. And I would be happy to report that we are upgrading our infrastructure completely from, from what we were using before. And, you know, our, our infrastructure for Mastodon Social, it basically grew 
out from a single box originally in, you know, in 2016. We, we moved providers, well, I say we, back then it was just me. I, I moved providers quite uh, a few times uh, during seven years, you know, from I'm trying to remember where our original box was, probably DigitalOcean, actually. Wow. Um, we've tried using Scaleway, then eventually we moved to Hetzner, the German hosting company where we are right now. But basically it grew out of a single box into basically a, a cluster of uh, 15 or, or, or 20 different machines manually managed by me. Uh, and right now we're upgrading to using Kubernetes and you know th that simplifies a, a lot of the, the scaling significantly from you know where it would take half a day to set up a new machine. It's like, okay, it's a couple clicks, a couple of key keyboard button presses, and you know, you, you have the capacity for a lot more traffic than you had before. So in that sense, and plus having, you know, a, a DevOps person on the case, it will hopefully improve the speed by uh, by a lot. Second feature request, and I'm actually curious if you feel the pressure to to look and feel more like Twitter now than before. My second feature request is just quote tweets. I often want to just like quote tweet someone from the Verge and say, this is great. Look at this. And I know that you're opposed to it, but it, is it, we have you started to reconsider? We could do a whole episode about quote, quote tweets. Quote tweets. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can just, you know, if I start talking about it now, if I start describing oh, no. like the history of the, you know, and, and the positions that people have on this feature, but I'll, I'll, I'll keep myself short and I'll say we have a public roadmap on our website and quote posts are uh, under the exploring section of, of that roadmap. So. <laughs> the most complicated section of all. <laughs> it means that we're looking into it and, you know, we'll hopefully we'll bring you quote posts. So I like it. What's next for Mastodon? What's, what should people be on the lookout for next? Groups, probably. That's, that's a big one, big feature coming. It's, well, it's what you would expect. Facebook has groups, uh, Twitter has communities and Mastodon will have groups as well. So, Very good. Eugen, thank you so much for being on Decoder. We'll have to have you back soon. Thank you, and have a good day. Thanks again to Eugen Rochko for taking the time to talk today, and thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit us up directly on Twitter or TikTok. We're at DecoderPod. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like that show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters, and our executive director is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen.